So, a really good question comes in from Rick. Uh, how does Satan, through the Antichrist in Daniel 9, through uh, verse 27, confirm a holy covenant as described in Daniel 11.30? Uh, it cannot be holy unless it's from God. This also implies there is a covenant already in place, which makes more sense that it is from God. Okay, so let me go ahead and read uh, the passages that are in view here. So if you got your Bible ready, hopefully it's in hand, ready to go. Because at the end of the day, we always want to know what it has to say uh, about these things. So I'm going to go ahead and read Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and then uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 30. We'll read a couple of other verses there, too, just to understand how these ideas are connected. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, uh, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, or an anointed one, the prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks, an anointed one uh, shall be, uh, be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood." And to the end, uh, to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for one half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now let's jump over to chapter eleven, uh, starting in verse thirty. Uh, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant, and forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the, abo- set up the abomination that makes desolate." And he goes on to speak about some of his other activities and his persuasiveness and all that kind of thing. So um, let me start by describing what's going on here. Uh, in in Daniel chapter 9 and, and further expanded in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 30 there, we see an event uh, or a period of time taking place that Daniel prophesies about under the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are 70 weeks or Shabua, Shabuim, uh, the plural, I, I if I understand that correctly. But anyway, the, the term there is uh, Sabuah, I think is the Hebrew. But the idea there is that they speak of seven in terms of periods of time. Sometimes it speaks of seven days in a week. Other times it's more of a heptad kind of a thing where it speaks of uh, seven years, a seven-year period of time. So uh, 77s or 70 weeks in Daniel's prophecy is speaking to 70 seven-year periods of time, or 490 years. Now, in Daniel's prophecy, uh, through the verses that we just read in verse 24 to 27, there's clearly uh, a division of how these weeks unfold. Uh, there is some debate about why the uh, the first part of this, the 69 weeks, is divided the way it is. Um, but there is clearly uh, an understanding as to the division between the first 69 weeks and the 70th week, okay? So in the first 69 weeks, which begins with the going forth of the, the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, and so that takes place, 483 years happen between that point 
and what Daniel says uh, describes is the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, um, uh, the, the the Savior that is promised is going to come uh, at the end of that sixty ninth week, and then there is the seventieth week that takes place. Uh, by the way, the Messiah is described here as as Messiah, the Prince. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. Uh, the implication being he's going to be killed, but not for something he did. And of course, we understand the gospel. Jesus dies not for his own sin, but for our sin. So he's cut off at that point. Right, right in between the 69th and 70th week, we also see a description here of this idea of the desolation of Jerusalem. Okay, uh, the, the, des- uh, the, as, as he goes on here, desolations are decreed, uh, and this kind of thing. He'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. This period of time that is described here between the 69th and 70th week actually took place in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian came in and destroyed, uh, under him the temple was destroyed. The, the story goes that his intention was not to destroy the temple, but a fire breaks out in the temple and the gold in the temple begins to melt and fall between the cracks or drip between the cracks of the temple stones. And as Jesus said in the beginning of Matthew 24, not one stone was left upon another as Vespasian commanded the stones to be uh, toppled off of one another so they could get the gold out and all this kind of a thing. Wasn't the intention for the temple to be burned, but nonetheless, that's what happened, even as Jesus predicted would happen. So um, now, uh, some, and just as a quick insert here, some have seen that, um, that destruction of the temple as the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. Um, however, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel uh, includes elements not just here in this passage, but also in, for example, pa- uh, passages like chapter 11, verse 30, where uh, and, and beyond, where it talks about, again, there, the abomination of desolation. There's also, I believe, mentioned once more in chapter 12. Um, but the idea, and, and Jesus then goes on to describe uh, the events uh, that what will take place. In the abomination of desolation, uh, there will be... Uh, an image standing in the holy place. Matter of fact, just quickly, uh, turn to Matthew 24. All you prophecy nerds out there, like me, this is a verse you, you already know by heart. But uh, chapter 24, verse 15. Uh, Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, is describing what this event is going to look like. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, uh, by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then, of course, there's the encouragement to let the reader understand. And then he goes on to give instruction to flee from Judea and the mount, uh, uh, to the mountains and so on. But Jesus speaks of this event and says this is going to involve an image standing in the holy place. It's not the abomination of desolation unless that happens. That didn't happen in 70 AD under Titus Vespasian. As a matter of fact, an event similar to what Jesus described happened uh, in 168 uh, BC under Antiochus Epiphanes, but that was not the abomination of desolation because Jesus spoke about it being yet future in his own time after that event took place. So our understanding of this is that this has not taken place yet. Okay, so when does it take place? Well, it takes place in the 70th week of Daniel. Once again, verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This same covenant appears to be the same one being referred to in chapter 11, verse 30. It's called holy there. Uh, The idea of this covenant being made by Antichrist, by this one who will rise up, um, this little horn as he's described. Um, We see this unfolding in, in Revelation 13, uh, more on that in a second, but 
but this is when this takes place in the 70th week of Daniel, this last seven year period of human history culminating in the return of Christ to establish his own kingdom. Something else that Daniel speaks about in chapter two and in chapter seven in his prophecy. Um, and so again, at the end of verse 27, there's this mention of the wing of abominations and all of this. So now the question to start with is how can this covenant be called holy if it's made by antichrist? Well, the word holy, um, just simply means separate. Okay. Um, you, I wouldn't necessarily argue this, but I suppose it could be argued that because God is ultimately the sovereign of the universe, these events are taking place as he has decreed and all this kind of thing. You could say that it is ultimately because this is how he has designed things to play out. Therefore, we could call it holy. Um, I could see the merit of that idea. But the word holy literally just means separated unto. So when we use the word holy, like in the New Testament, we're talking about like you and I are holy. We're set apart for the Lord. It doesn't mean that we're particularly good or something like that necessarily. You know, Paul would probably have something to say about that, right? But the idea that we are um, set apart is what's really in view in that word. And that's true in the Old Testament as well. The idea is that you're separated. So this idea is that there is something sort of other about this covenant. This covenant is special in its own way. It's not necessarily that it was instituted directly by God, but rather it is set apart as sort of a unique uh, standout kind of a feature of what's going on during that period of time. Now, of course, that is a standout feature of what's going on during that period of time, because as we get into Daniel's 70th week, we rec- we have to recognize that as the prophecy is given, and starting in verse 24, this prophecy has to do specifically with the people of Israel and the holy city. Okay, In other words, this is a very Israel-centric, not only prophecy, but an Israel-centric period of time. Now, that may be kind of an aha moment for people when you're beginning to study Scripture. Uh, in America, we tend to sometimes have a very Western-centric idea of, of interpreting prophecy and that kind of thing. That's a mistake. Um, and another post down the road I'm thinking about addressing this question, too, is America in Bible prophecy. I'm not going to give a spoiler alert. I'll just wait till then. But I will say that whether or not America is in prophecy at all, America is not the focus of prophecy. Israel is the focus of prophecy, ultimately. As a matter of fact, it's well been said that if you want to know where we are in the prophetic timetable, watch Israel. When Israel came back into the land in 1948 and they were declared the nation once again, that was in direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The idea that um, that that the book of Revelation does not deal with the church. Um, it, it after chapter once we get into chapter six for sure, it, at the very least by chapter four, but uh, but certainly by chapter six, we're not in view at all anymore until we return with him in, in chapter 19. And so that's why, by the way. Uh, when you read the book of Revelation, it sounds a lot like an Old Testament kind of a book. It is apocalyptic in the same way that Daniel is, or Zechariah is, or parts of Isaiah are, and that kind of thing, and others, Joel, and that kind of thing. Because it is extremely, entirely, really, Israel-centric. By the way, I guess in sort of passing, uh, I'm going to answer another question that came up in regard to the idea of the church going through the tribulation. One reason that is sometimes pointed to as to uh, as an evidence for the church being here during the great tribulation uh, is the woman of Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, there is a woman mentioned, and I apologize for kind of getting a little bit on a tangent here, but this is kind of an important thing. Um, 
uh, in regard to the Israel-centric nature of the last days. Um, the woman in, in chapter 12 of Revelation is oftentimes, and very specifically by some um, denominations within Christianity, is pointed to as being representative of the church. This is a mistake. Uh, the woman of Revelation 12 is not the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, we can know this with absolute certainty. We don't have to wonder if this is true. We know exactly who this is. Um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church points to the woman as, as being uh, Israel, or being um, being the church. Other groups tend to sometimes see her this, this way as well. And therefore, the church is sort of swept away when the devil comes to persecute. In other words, during the Great Tribulation, when this great persecution is coming, it's then that the church is swept away and this kind of thing. Um, here's, here's some of the problems with that. Um, first off, the church didn't have a child. Okay, the man-child that's mentioned is born, and we know the man-child that's in view is Jesus. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Okay, uh, Mary, again, from my previous Catholic understanding of this, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they see Mary in there, she's representative of the church, she gives birth to Messiah and this kind of thing. Um, the woman's not Mary either, at least not properly. You know, uh, in terms of her national identity, she would be part of it, but it's she's not specifically in view there in anything beyond being the vehicle through which Messiah comes, but in terms of her national identity. Um, secondly, um, the fact that there is the imagery that is described in her, the woman with the sun, moon, and stars, that's not the first time we see that imagery. The first time we see that imagery is back in Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph has a dream, and his father Jacob interprets the dream for him. He has a dream of uh, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowing down to him. And Jacob, his father, hears this dream as Joseph tells it to him, and he says, will your mother and I and your brothers all bow down to you? And so he interprets it. The woman is Israel, Okay. Uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob and his wife, the, the, the tribes, this is Israel in view. In Revelation chapter 12, we don't just sort of subjectively determine who that is. We have a previous vision of this with an explanation that helps us understand it. When you put Israel in there as the woman, it makes perfect sense. It is Israel who is persecuted by, um, by the Antichrist. And this, by the way, plays back into, you thought I was just kind of meandering, we're actually coming back now to to uh, Daniel chapter 11 and, and chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 27, again, he makes a covenant with, with Daniel's people uh, for one week, the many for one week. And then for three and a half years of that, or in the second half of that week, or the three and a half year mark, we see what happens here in Daniel chapter 11 take place. And also in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Uh, in Daniel chapter 11, once again, uh, he takes action here. He uh, turns back and doesn't pay attention. Uh, he'll turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. In other words, where he has on the one hand sort of made this agreement with Israel. Um, and we can surmise what may be involved in that. Maybe the building of their temple and all that kind of stuff may come with that. doesn't specifically say that, although it does say that the sacrifices and offerings, both in, in Daniel um, in Daniel chapter 9, but also here in Daniel chapter 11, we see that the sacrifices and offerings cease. Uh, 
at the midway point when he violates this covenant. In other words, he turns from his agreement with Israel and he now sides with those who are not part of the covenant. In other words, he turns from that covenant and in concert with that, he causes the sacrifices and offerings to cease. It is fair to surmise that as we make our way through this passage in chapter 11, verse 30 and 31, where he talks then about setting up the abomination that makes desolate, this clearly brings us to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where he goes into the temple of God, declaring himself, uh, telling himself that he is God, declaring a demand to be worshipped above all that is called God. Revelation chapter 13, the image is set up by the false prophet, of the of the antichrist it is demanded to be worshiped they have to take the mark of the beast on the forehead uh, right hand or forehead they ha- they they also have to worship this this image and that kind of thing uh, this all happens after he goes in and violates this covenant sends israel running for their lives as they now come to realize this is not the messiah this is actually antichrist and so all of these passages we're talking about all feed into the same period of time and the same group of people that are in view. Uh, so the earlier question, how can it be holy? Again, that just speaks of a separated kind of an idea, but it's also important to recognize and understand what is going on during this period of time. This covenant, this agreement that the Antichrist makes with Israel is actually not holy at all. Uh, in terms of, I mean, in terms of being separate and unique, it, it is like we said, but in terms of holy the way we generally think of it, it's not at all. It's actually an abomination on both sides uh, from the Antichrist part because he's deceiving Israel into letting their guard down so that he can persecute them at one point and, and use their temple as a platform from which to declare his own deity. But it's also an abomination from Israel's side because Israel is building this temple because they are living in, in rejection of and blindness, blindly living in rejection of the fact that their Messiah has already come. And he came to put down not just Rome, but he came ultimately to solve the sin issue, to, to put, um, um, to, to, to pay with his own, putting his own life down on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He came to conquer and defeat death and sin first. And then he'll come back and he'll set up his kingdom as the conqueror that, that generally speaking Israel was expecting. But the temple, when it's rebuilt during the time of, of, of Antichrist is actually a total abomination because the work is finished. It's not commemorative of Jesus' work like the Millennial Temple likely will be, but instead it stands as a a means for them to reestablish their sacrificial system, demonstrating that they have not understood that Jesus, in fact, as John the Baptist said, was the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So um, a, uh, a lengthy answer to a kind of brief question, but a very, very good question. And, uh, and hopefully, in expanding on that a little bit, it helps to bring some understanding uh, to the passages that are in view in this question. Uh, again, the Revelation 12 issue is a very, very important one. And to get that wrong, uh, can uh, you know, and, and there's not a lot of times I, I make such a firm position on something. But when it comes to the identity of the woman in Revelation, um, misunderstanding that on a personal level can just bring you theological confusion. However, it is that kind of replacement thinking that has actually been responsible for some horrific atrocities throughout history uh, on a denominational level. You know, the, the, the church at large has often been guilty of, of, of either outright participation in, if, but at the very least, not stepping up on behalf of Israel when they've been persecuted, in part because of the view that we've replaced them. Replacement theology is not good theology. That is absolutely aberrant. 
And so the uh, seeing the woman in Revelation 12 as being the church as opposed to Israel kind of lends itself to that. And we want to be very careful about that, especially in light of the fact that we understand who the woman is because she's already been explained. It's, it's, it's not even ironic. It's, it makes perfect sense that in the book of Revelation, at the end of God's revelation, he is using an image that he first introduces and, and has explained at the beginning of the revelation in the earliest, some of the earliest parts of, of scripture. So that being said, I ended up answering two questions today instead of just one. But um, but there you go. That's um, that's hopefully helpful. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us opportunities to come together and to consider these scriptural ideas. We pray that we would apply ourselves to a um, to a good systematic understanding of your word. We pray that we would um, also approach these subjects with a measure of humility. That we would recognize the value of study, but to also acknowledge that people do land on different places on some of these issues. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we do pray that your word would become the deciding factor um, uh, when it comes to these differences. When passages are clear, help us to recognize them as being clear and to apply that to our theological thinking and our eschatological thinking. So we love you, Lord, and praise you for this. Thank you for those who are watching and asking questions and interacting. Father, it's such a blessing to be part of a body that extends far beyond our own far walls and church on a Sunday, but actually is around the world. We thank you for this and the fact that we can interact. So we praise you, bless you, ask you to bless us with a deeper relationship with you as we seek to know your word all the better. So thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.